please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 8. As you turn there, for those of you who may be visiting with us or haven't been here with us for a while, uh, we practice uh, expositional preaching. In other words, we're simply just going through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, I, I did not plan the weather or the message to hit on the, the weather that it's hitting on this morning. This was this, And I don't know what it says, but here we are this morning looking at faith in the storms, looking at a storm and experiencing a storm out there. So it's a great illustration, if, if nothing else. I appreciate uh, that working out that way. Luke chapter 8, and we're beginning a section of, of three kind of stories, three parts to maybe even four stories that illustrate Jesus's power and faith in Jesus as a result of that power. And we're going to be looking at these stories over the next, well actually we're going to, to take a break over the next two weeks as we I look at the Christmas story, and then we're going to go back into Luke at the beginning of, of the year, and so we're excited about uh, this, this season as well. Please stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. If you're able to stand, please stand with me together as we read Luke chapter 8, and we're going to be reading verses 22 through 26, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Luke writes, one day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Maybe we'd be encouraged through God's word this morning. You may be seated. Father, this morning as our hearts are, are turned to your word, we pray that you would open them. We thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. We pray for, for safety as we travel today. We pray for a great mercy just over the next few weeks as we will be thinking more of you. And we would pray that that would be true we, as we have opportunities to talk with those who may not know you and just have some unique opportunities over the next few weeks. We pray that we be good stewards of them. We pray for those who are ill this morning, and we pray for your great mercies in their life. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. In the 11th century, King Canute ruled Denmark, England, and some parts of Norway. It was said that the king was a wise and noble king, inspiring fierce loyalty among his subjects. In fact, it is said that his subjects, as they considered how great the authority of King Canute was, they, they began to say that he, was, he had such great authority, such great power, that he was a king that could command even the, the tides, and the tides would obey him. The king heard what his courtiers were saying and recognized the foolishness of what they believed, and so he ordered that his throne be taken down to the ocean's shore. 
and his throne was taken down there and placed at the very edge of the shore. The king sat upon his throne and commanded the waves to cease. And of course, nothing happened. And as the edges of his robes became wet with water, the king stood and faced his courtiers and said this, Let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings, for there is none worthy of that name but he whom heaven and earth and sea obey by eternal decree. In other words, King Canute was saying, my power is limited. I'm your sovereign, yes, I have authority, yes, but my power is limited. And to demonstrate the limits of his authority, it is said that he took the crown off of his head on that day, placed it on a cross, and never picked it up again. That's at least according to legend. But what if? What if there was a king who had such power? What if your king had that power? What if your king was a sovereign king who was sovereign not only over your life, not only over the visible realm, but a king who was sovereign over all realms, visible and invisible? What would the implications be if you served such a king? Let me suggest to you, if the consequences of serving such a king would be rather profound. Perhaps things in your life would go well and it'd be very easy to serve such a sovereign king and recognize his authority. So for example, you get a promotion at work and you say, well, of course I got a promotion at work. My, my king is sovereign over all things and he loves me and he likes me, so of, of course I got a promotion. Of course I'm, I'm healthy, I serve a sovereign king. Of course my, my children are healthy and well, I serve a sovereign king. Of course my spouse thinks I'm so wonderful, I serve a sovereign king. But what if you said, I serve a sovereign king and bad things happen to you? Perhaps you might be tempted to say, I, I thought I served a sovereign king, but I'm very ill right now, I have this terminal disease, Therefore, this king that I serve that I thought was sovereign must not be sovereign over all things. Or you might say, I thought I served this sovereign king. Maybe he is sovereign, but my spouse seems to despise me. Therefore, if my king is sovereign, he must not like me very much. Or maybe he's not very mindful of me. I thought I served a sovereign king, but terrible things are happening in my life. Therefore, he must not love me. I'm going through these financial difficulties. Maybe he's not sovereign. Maybe he's sovereign and just is ignoring me. Or, the third option that's available to us is that we serve a sovereign king. He is mindful of us. And it is his plan for our lives that we go through whatever storm we find ourselves in. In other words, as we go through the financial difficulties, as we go through terrible health problems, as, as things happen to people whom we love very dearly, perhaps we do have a sovereign king, and indeed we do, a king who is sovereign and who loves us, and a king who is sovereign, loves us, and is appointed 
a time of suffering for us. There are some tremendous implications for our lives if it is true that we have a sovereign king, a king who's sovereign over the entire created realm, visible and invisible. There's some profound implications, some very uncomfortable implications for us as we go through difficult times. We're going to walk through this text this morning together and consider some of those. The main thing I want you to see, though, is that trials, trials, difficulties in life, are not signs of God's eternal torment in your life, but rather are tests that are designed to reveal your trust in Christ. The trials that a sovereign king places in your life are not signs of his displeasure, his desire to torment you for eternity. These trials aren't going to last for eternity, but rather these trials, these difficulties, are from a sovereign, loving God designed to develop and reveal your trust in him, and specifically in Christ. Well, let's look at the story together. We're going to to talk through the story, and then we're going to consider uh, three implications of this story. The story begins in verse 22. Jesus gets into the boat with his disciples that are on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is some five miles long, 13 miles wide. He gets into the boat with his disciples, and they uh, say, where do you want to go, Jesus? And he says, we're going to go to the other side of the lake. He makes a very definitive, declarative statement. We're going to the other side of the lake. And so they get into the boat, they begin to sail, and as they sail across the lake, Jesus falls asleep. It's a very interesting picture in our mind's eye as the disciples are sailing across the lake, and Jesus is probably on a cushion there asleep in a fishing boat. What do the disciples know about this guy who's asleep in the boat? They know that he's a a man with great authority. They've seen him proclaim the coming kingdom of God. They've heard him talking about this this new ethical code that exists, and he's called people to turn from their sins, to turn to faith in God, to turn to faith in him, and they've heard him announce this coming kingdom of God and called people to come to it. He has not just declared that people need to come to the kingdom of God. He's He's not just said that they need to have faith in him, but he's demonstrated his authority, through signs and and wonders, there's been some amazing things that have happened. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him remove demons from people. They've seen him even bring someone back from the dead. So they see this, this man who has great authority, and yet he's also frail in some ways as well. He's tired. He needs to rest. They've seen him be thirsty and and hungry. What do we know about this man who's asleep in the boat? We know more than the disciples know. We know what John tells us in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, John says this about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus Christ was God himself. Jesus Christ was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14 says, The word, Jesus, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And here in the boat, as they travel across the Sea of Galilee, 
Jesus is asleep, fully God and fully man. Colossians 1 tells us this about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's God in the flesh, the physical manifestation of the Spirit being God. He's the firstborn, the, the, the preeminent one of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So here on the boat, the Sea of Galilee, as they travel across, there's Jesus, fully God, the image of the invisible God. And this man who's asleep on the boat is the one who, by his word, brought the entire created realm into existence. By him, Colossians tells us, all things were made. John 1 tells us this as well. And not only were things made by him, but Colossians 1 tells us all things were made for him. He is the reason, not just the cause, but the reason for all the created realm. And in fact, not only is the the cause and the reason for the entire created realm, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, authorities, whatever, he is also the one who holds everything that's been created together. And so at this moment in time, as Jesus is asleep on a boat, he is fully man. They can see his humanity right there on the boat, asleep, needing to rest. At that exact same moment, he is fully God, the one who created the universe, the one who the universe exists for, and even as he is asleep on the boat, He is the one who is holding the universe together by the power of his name. It's an amazing scene, right? That's the man who's asleep on the boat. Fully God, fully man. As they sail across the Sea of Galilee, verse 23 tells us, that a windstorm came down on the lake. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a very low elevation. It's 700 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by mountains, and the cold air from the mountains comes down these ravines, and the ravines kind of form this wind tunnel, and and it hits the warm air coming up off the lake, and a very violent storm can sometimes develop. And that's what takes place here. This windstorm comes down on the lake, and they were, it says they were filling with water and were in danger. These guys, these disciples, many of them are experienced fishermen. They know the dangers of the lake, and they also know when something's really dangerous and not so dangerous. This is really dangerous. The, the winds are picking up, the water's coming into the boat, and the disciples get pretty freaked out. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about the, the scene that takes place here. The disciples begin to cry out, Master, Master. Some say, Teacher. Some say, Lord. And they're very scared at the situation that they find themselves in. They look down at Jesus. They see him asleep. They recognize that he has authority to do something. And they see that he's not doing anything right now. They say, Master, Master, Lord, Lord. Verse 24, we are perishing. And Mark says, that they, one of them even said, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing 
if I'm a disciple at that moment, that's probably how I'm going to respond as well, right? (laughs) Their response is to see someone asleep on the boat who has the ability to stop this and isn't. And they come to this conclusion. The reason that he's not doing anything right now is a lack of attention, a lack of care, a lack of desire to do something. Master, don't you care that we are perishing? Don't you see our situation and aren't you bothered by it? Why aren't you intervening? Their response is understandable, it's normal, and it's sinful. Am I being too harsh? (laughs) Look again at the text. Jesus wakes up. It says that he rebuked the wind, the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. Imagine that authority. It's like a dad to the kids. Hey, cut that out. Except this time they listen. Boom, immediate calm. And then Jesus looks at the disciples. Now again, I'm somewhat uncomfortable with this text. Let me just say that right out. I'm a little uncomfortable with this, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But Jesus looks at them. And he says to them in verse 25, where is your faith? And Mark tells us that he has the words, uh, why, why were you frightened? Where is your faith? I was here in the boat with you. You know my authority. You know my care for you. Why were you afraid? Now, if I'm on the boat, I say, what do you mean why was I afraid? Uh, Do you see the boat? We're still half full of water. (laughs) Did did you see the wind? Of course I was afraid. But that's not the right response. Jesus looks at their distress, and he points to their anxiety in the midst of the storm as not just a wrong understanding, but a morally wrong response to trial. A morally wrong response to the storm. It was a sinful response. Why? Because it was a response that lacked faith. The disciples' response is to marvel, it says in verse 25. They're afraid, not not afraid of the physical storm anymore, but their fear is now rightly focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And they say to one another, who then is this that commands even winds and water and they obey him? What kind of authority does he have? And the disciples understood that the domain of authority over the wind and waters is a domain that is uniquely God's. Psalm 29 verse 3 says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders over many waters. Psalm 65, 7 says it's God who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their ways, the tumult of the peoples. In fact, if you can, just keep your finger in Luke chapter 8 and turn to Psalm 107. Psalm 107, verse 23. And as you're turning there, let me read a couple other verses. Turn to Psalm 107, verse 23. Psalm 93 
Verse 3 says, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. But mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. In Psalm 107 that you've turned to, Psalm 107, verse 23 says this. It says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded, he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went to the, down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. Verse 27, they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Verse 28, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that their waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. How much authority does God have over the created realm? It's complete and it's total. And what is his end in his authority over the created realm? It's his worship. And in Psalms, throughout the Psalms, we see God's authority over the created realm, his authority over the seas. And here in Psalm 107, we see that God's authority over the sea, even in the midst of troubled times, is to result in his worship. He brings upon the, the storm, and, and people cry out to him, and as he delivers them, they recognize the source of their deliverance. The disciples, as they have gone through this storm, respond with marvel and rightly directed fear. Now, I've told you, I'm uncomfortable with this text. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable with it because of the demands that the text makes on me and I'm uncomfortable because of the demands that the text requires I make of you. You see, it's one thing to kind of abstractly say, yeah, I, I, I serve a sovereign Lord. God, God is sovereign. I, I serve him and I worship him. Do you? Do you understand the implications of claiming to have faith in a sovereign Lord? If you say, I have faith in a sovereign Lord, what you're saying is, I have faith in a sovereign Lord no matter what trials he ordains that I go through. If I am the person you come to in the midst of your troubles, you're on a boat and sea and the waves are coming and crashing over the boat and you say, I, I'm, I'm feeling overwhelmed. My temptation is to say, I understand, I, I feel bad for you. I'm, I'm so sorry you're going through this. Uh, hey, it's okay to feel a little anxious right now. The text doesn't leave us that option. If you say I have faith in a sovereign Lord, what I need to do is point you to him. Let me give you Three implications. If you're going to say, I have faith in a sovereign Lord, my faith is in my sovereign Lord and King Jesus, let me give you three implications from this story that, again, make me uncomfortable in a good way and that I very humbly want to present to you this morning for your edification and exhortation. The first thing is this. 
faith in a sovereign Lord means following him into storms. Number one, faith in a sovereign Lord means following him into storms. You know, there are two options that are denied us as believers with this truth. Two options that are denied us. One option is, as we look at this text, we can't say this. We can't say, I'm not going to follow God in this area because of the potential dangers that exist in following God in this area. I'm not going to follow God in this area because of the potential discomfort that may arise as I choose to follow him. You know, one of the many problems that I, I think takes place as we present the gospel is we haven't rightly helped people understand what the gospel is. Really appreciate uh, Josh this morning, Josh Durham, talking about evangelism explosion, explosion, what our desire is through that ministry, that we'd help people rightly understand the gospel. Sometimes we present the gospel this way. Hey, what are, you, what are your problems? Are you feeling kind of down? Are you feeling kind of depressed? Well, well, God wants to be the, the pill that, fix that fixes that. Are you kind of depressed about your uh, finances? Well, God wants to provide you with all the finances you need. And we've made God like this, like this uh, concierge at a, at a plush resort. What can do- God do to make your stay more comfortable? That's what God is all about. Or we've made God like a politician. How can I get you to like God? Vote for him. Vote for the Jesus party. <laughs> That's not the God of Scripture. In fact, Scripture is very, very clear about the person who desires to come and place their faith in Jesus Christ. The, the gospel is very clear about the potential dangers and discomfort and pain that awaits you. Second uh, Timothy 3.12. Second Timothy 3.12 says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John, the gospel of John, John chapter 15, verse 19, this is what Jesus says. This is his gospel presentation. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He goes on to say, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Verse 21, all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So faith in a sovereign Lord, first of all, means we can't look into the future and say, boy, if I, if I follow God in this area, it might lead to this discomfort, therefore I, I won't do this. If I share the gospel with this co-worker, it might lead to me looking a little bad in front of him, therefore I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to follow Jesus into that storm. That's the first option that is precluded from us if we believe that we have a sovereign Lord. We can't say, I'm not going to follow him because of what I think may happen. Secondly, not only is that option removed from us, we also can't say this. I follow Jesus, and as I follow Jesus, something bad happened. I'm so shocked. (laughs) Something bad happened to me. Therefore, what I did must have been wrong. You see what I'm saying? You can't say, I followed Jesus, something bad happened to me, therefore, it was probably the wrong thing to do. Acts chapter 20, Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders, and he says this in verse 22. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Oh, except this, verse 23, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. What would you do if that was God's presentation to you as he called you to a ministry? 
hey, I want you to go into this ministry. I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen there. Oh, but I will tell you this. Imprisonment and affliction awaits you at every city. Sign me up, right? What this means for us, as we think about the things that God has called us to do, is that we can't say that must not be God's calling because difficulty is seen down that path. If we truly believe that God is sovereign, that Christ is our sovereign king, we cannot say, well, I'm not going to do that because it leads to difficulty. It leads to discomfort. Is it possible? Is it possible this morning that God has already called you to do something difficult? And you've chosen not to do it because you're afraid of getting wet. You know something that God has already called you to do. There's a ministry that he's called you to be involved in, and, and you've hesitated because you've, th- you've said, well, God, I might get wet. I'm going to stay here on the shore if it's all the same to you. Or there's a relationship in your life, and, and you know that God wants you to do some very difficult things in that relationship as you follow him. Maybe it's confronting someone you love very dearly in their sin. Maybe it's asking a person that you've wronged for forgiveness. There's some things that God has called you to do already, and you've hesitated because it means a storm. If you truly believe that your Lord is sovereign, you follow him into that storm, don't you? Faith in a sovereign Lord, faith in a sovereign king, means willingly following him into the storm. God God may promise you, hey, if if you follow me, it's not going to go well. It's not going to go well in a temporary sense. Follow me anyway. Trust in me as your sovereign king. A verse that may encourage you as you think about that is Psalm 56, verse 8. It's not as though God is not mindful of the sufferings we go through. In Psalm 56, verse 8, the psalmist says, uh, You have kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in a bottle. (laughs) Sovereign King calls us into storms and loves us as he does so. The second thing that faith in a sovereign Lord means I think based on this text, faith in a sovereign Lord means trusting him in the midst of storms. The second and third are going to overlap a little bit here, but but what I'm saying here is at that moment of trial, in that moment where you're going through that, that difficult time, is your basic attitude one of trust? Is your basic attitude one of, of trust in a sovereign Lord? Or is it anxiousness? Fear? a troubled spirit. One Christian counselor told me one time, he was t- we were talking about uh, our different ap- approaches to, to counseling someone who was, was going through a, a period of grief, and we talked about a person that, that may be going through grief when someone very close to them has died. He told me, he said, you know, <coughs> excuse me, he said, I would tell a person that 
if they came to me and, and said, I'm, I'm very angry at God right now, I, would, I wouldn't tell them that was wrong. I would tell them that's, that's a good thing because God can handle it. I said, I think that's terrible advice. <laughs> I said, we're agreed that God can handle it. <laughs> well, that's a very dangerous place for that person's soul to be. And of course, if a person was going through, through terrible grief, we respond with, with graciousness and, and love. But what we as believers are to do is to be like guardrails for people as they go through grief, helping them go through that, that time of great difficulty and sorrow, but preventing them from going into avenues that will lead to, to their spiritual, uh, could lead to, to, to spiritual catastrophe. Faith in a sovereign Lord means at that moment of trial, and, and, I, and this is a, a hard truth, that moment of trial, as, as the water comes into the boat, being able to tell a person at that moment, trust in a sovereign Lord. Uh, trust in Him. Have faith in Christ. Philippians 4.13 is a, a passage that people often turn to as they're, they're talking about all the things that we can do. But Philippians 4.13 has to be taken in context. Philippians 4.11, Paul says this. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned to be in whatever situation, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, this isn't like I can go win the football game because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's like I can go through suffering. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's an amazing difference and an amazing truth here. I've shared the story before of our little girl Hannah whenever she was 14 days old. And how she uh, had reflux during the night and, and almost suffocated to death. And how the doctors worked hard to, to save her and, and Whitney saved her life as well with some of the things that she did but two years later her brother Austin was born and I as I held this newborn baby in, in my hands I, I was anxious I thought about what had happened with his, his, his sister and how I hadn't been there for her and, and hadn't been able to, to protect her when I needed to most and and those first few hours in the hospital I just it was hard to even set him down. And that night, the, the nurses said, would you like us to take him and, 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 and wheel him away into the, the nursery? And we said yes, and I began to become very anxious and went down to look at him and looked at the nurses and said, why isn't anyone watching him? I said, what do you mean? I said, you guys need to be watching that kid. Sir, There's, he's fine. I said, we were watching him, and all of a sudden he began to spit up. I said, he's spitting up! I said, sir, are you sure you've had another child before? I said, yeah. Yeah, I have. Then my mom sent me a note. 
on it was Philippians 4.8. Philippians 4.8 says this. I'm sorry, Psalm. <laughs> Psalm 4.8 says this. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Who is it that causes us to be safe? As parents, we kind of like this illusion that we, we do things and it causes our children to be safe, and, and certainly we should, should strive to keep our children safe, but when it comes down to it, we can do nothing to keep our children perfectly safe. We trust in a sovereign Lord in good times, and we trust in a sovereign Lord in the midst of storms. Can you sleep? Can you rest in the Lord in the midst of whatever difficult thing that God is doing in your life right now? Are you anxious? Are you troubled? Or do you have the trust in a sovereign God who keeps you in the palm of his hand, even as in the palm of his hand you're going through terrible storms? Third, third implication is this. A faith in a sovereign Lord means understanding that he ordains storms. Faith in a sovereign Lord means understanding that, that it's God himself who is ordaining the storm. Evangelicals, evangelical Christians sometimes have some pretty pathetic descriptions of suffering. It's almost like we're scared of what's going to happen if people understand how much in control God is, and so we're trying to give them an out. Uh, oh yeah, I know you're going through the, this terrible time. If, if God was able, he'd stop that. If God was able. Let me read you uh, something John Piper wrote. He wrote this uh, just hours after a bridge collapse in Minneapolis. You may have remember that a few years ago. And that evening, he sat down at his computer and he, and he, he wrote this. He said, we, we prayed tonight during our family devotions. Talitha, my 11-year-old, and Noel, his wife, and I prayed earnestly for the families affected by the calamity and for others in our city. Now, Talitha prayed, please don't let anyone blame God for this, but give thanks, but give thanks to him that they were saved. Piper goes on, he says, when I sat on her bed and tucked her in and blessed her and sang over her for a few minutes, I said, you know, Talitha, that was a good prayer. It was a good prayer because if someone blames God for something, they are angry with him. They're saying that he has done something wrong. That's what blame means, to accuse someone of wrongdoing. But you and I know that God did not do anything wrong. God always does what is wise. And you and I know that God could have held up that bridge with one hand. And Talitha said, with his pinky. And I said, yes, with his pinky. Which means that God had a purpose for not holding up that bridge, knowing all that would happen. And he is infinitely wise in all that he wills. And Talitha said, maybe he let it fall because he wanted all the people of Minneapolis to fear him. Yes, Talitha, I said, I'm sure that's one of the reasons God let the bridge fall. 
trusting in a sovereign Lord, having faith in a sovereign Lord means understanding that he ordains storms. He has his purposes. He has his reasons. These are not outside of his control. This is not his plan for your eternal torment, but an opportunity, a test to allow you to trust in Christ. Let me just, we're not going to be able to go through this, but let me just give you some reasons that God ordains suffering. These are from the book of 2 Corinthians. You can look these up later if you wish. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 tells us that, that suffering and trials produce empathy within us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 tell us that suffering strengthens our reliance upon God. Verses uh, 7 through 10 of chapter 4 tells us that as we suffer, we proclaim the power of God. Uh, verses 6 through 19 of chapter 4 tell us that suffering results in future rewards. Chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, tells us that suffering humbles us. Again and again in Scripture, we see that a loving, sovereign king does not just allow suffering to take place in our lives, but appoints suffering to take place in our lives for his perfect end. And faith in a sovereign Lord and King and God demands, demands that we trust him in the midst of it and understand that it's part of his sovereign plan for us. God is good in all things. God is good in all things, and all things in our lives are to result in worship of him. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul talks about suffering being only for a moment. We see that the end of suffering, the end of trials, the end of evil is going to be worship. We see this in Revelation 19. I want to close with this. Revelation 19. John says, I, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute Babylon who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The eternal end of even evil and suffering and persecution is going to be the word Hallelujah. This morning, I could walk outside and I could say, cold weather, cease. Nothing would happen. Probably. Nothing would happen by my authority. But you know what else I could do? I could walk up to you this morning, I could say, financial difficulties, be gone. A spouse, love each other. Children, stop arguing. Depression, be gone. And you know what would happen? Nothing. Nothing would happen. I have no authority to take away the trial and the suffering in your life. But you know what? You have a sovereign Lord that could look at that trial this morning and say, financial difficulties, be gone. Marital discourse, be gone. Depression, leave. 
terminal illness be gone. And you know what? Your sovereign Lord has not done that. And yet he still loves you. And your opportunity at this moment in time, as you go through this storm, is not to say, Lord, don't you care that I'm perishing? But to say, Lord, I trust in you. And I worship you. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We worship you in all things. And we do this because of your grace. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.